Cue Playback. Welcome back to Cue Playback. It's Christopher Sprake, and today my guest is Les Thomas, Melbourne-based songwriter and uh, probably a stalwart of the Melbourne music scene, especially for people who are uh, focused more on songwriting. Um, so, Les, I, I realise we've just missed our um, anniversary. So we first met uh, in August in 2013. Oh, wow. And uh, that was at the Old Bar, um, another brilliant Melbourne institution. I remember it like um, it was yesterday, Christopher. <laughs> <laughs> um and at that point, you were running the unpaved um, songwriter sessions at the Old Bar, um, which had many Melbourne songwriters come through uh, for their sometimes first time on stage, but certainly um, that evolved into a little community of its own. Um, what are your memories of way back then, not just us meeting, but um, running those nights was... Aside from being incredibly stressful trying to get people out on a Monday night... Uh, how did how do you look back at that time? Um, I feel like um, there was a certain momentum um, in the songwriting community, um, and it was the right time to do that. So um, I think um, it might be actually a lot harder to do in the current climate. Mm. But but in 2013, 2014. Um, there were so many people around um, writing songs or visiting uh, from interstate or overseas. Um, people were very open to hearing each other's songs. So there was a great spirit of sharing music. Mm, and yep. the old bar was um, the perfect setting. Um, at, you know, it's an intimate room and it sounds great. It was usually uh, Lara Sulu, Sulu who looked after the sound there. And, um, yeah, the way it would usually run is you'd have newer people in the first half, a group of three, followed by more established um, people. So mm. I think people appreciated um, that sense of supporting new music and giving that kind of encouragement and connecting um, with older people, so or or, or just more practiced um, art, artists, and uh, yeah, I have countless beautiful memories um, from that time, and um, I, I'm really grateful um, t to have uh, been able to present that. Mm. You know, it's just a matter of joining the dots for me mm. and and making it happen. Um, I mean, I loved it myself. I think for me, um, the environment that had been created uh, where the artists felt very much at home, very comfortable, were able to do a little bit of back and forth with the audience and mm. uh, talk crap, and I, I love that stuff. Um, I don't get to do that as much anymore. Um, and, uh, like, my, I was lucky to be introduced to Katie Brianna, um, who has since done... Um, gigs with us or with myself and my bands in different forms. Um, yeah. uh, and, and Dominic Mithian, who um, unfortunately passed away not long after uh, we met. Um, I'm so sorry to hear that. Yeah. Um, so anyone out there listening, um, big uh, pour one out for Dominic. Um, so 2013, what we often do is look back at what music was in the charts. 
Now, given your background uh, in the sort of more country Americana scene, Liz, um, I looked back at what was in the charts in the country music charts in 2013. Um, so I'm just going to take you through a few of these. I'm, I'm not sure how many of these will be in your record collection. Uh, Taylor Swift, Red. No, far too mainstream, Christopher. <laughs> I mean, uh, I am like yeah, an outsider. Yep. I, I, I basically <laughs> back the underdogs. Uh, the, Story So people. Far by Keith Urban. Oh, man. <laughs> my wife wants me to get a Keith Urban haircut, and I'm like, sorry, I can't take that seriously. Uh, but I mean, he's, he's an awesome musician. Um, don't want to talk that down in any right. way. When you get offered the support slot, you'll yeah. walk it all back. Um, Jason Owen, Life is a Highway. <laughs> I do remember hearing that song and thinking, actually, that must have been a re-recording of the old, older song that came out a lot earlier um, mm. because that's got a bit of get up and go, that mm. song. Uh Wrote a song for everyone by John Fogarty. Well, I love John Fogarty. He's got like endless energy, mm. and whatever medication or workout program he does, <laughs> I basically <laughs> need to steal that that plan. Um, and the great country songbook by Trom uh, Troy Cassadaly and Adam Harvey. So it's a little bit closer to home. Mm. Um, so we, got while, a lot of time for Troy Cassadaly in particular. Mm, uh, while we we're like we both come from fairly different songwriting backgrounds, and so a lot of the, uh, I probably came into country or Americana more through just appreciating songwriting. But growing up, country music was, you know, to quote the old Joe, country and western. Mm. Um, so what about yourself? Like how did you first sort of come into music and end up in um, in the country music sort of vein? Um, was that something in your family? Not really. So mm. I, I do remember very long car rides with my dad listening to Jim Crokey and, um, you know, we'd talk a lot about music. I had pretty wide musical tastes, you know. I remember being very young and hearing like songs like Rhinestone Cowboy and absolutely loving that. I literally wanted to be a cowboy. Um, still, as, still time? Yeah, as an, <laughs> as an infant. I wanted to be the pink cowboy. That was mm -hmm. my thing as a, um, you know, three, four-year-old. And uh, I actually had my mum make me um, a, a, an outfit, a cowboy outfit in pink fabric. Wow. Which I'd... You, you know, I'd gear up and mm -hmm. I'd get on my little rocking horse. Brilliant. So, you know, I, I'd watch the Westerns and um, I'd, I'd just love that whole aesthetic and, um, yeah, those kinds of stories. Um, but, yeah, in my early teens, my friends and I started a punk band. We were age 13. We called ourselves the Lobotomy Scars and... Um, I was right into skateboarding, so I think that was like a pathway to punk music. Yep. And I loved, you know, the politics, the uh, the kind of iconoclasm of punk rock. Mm. Um, people like Jello, Biafra were very influential to me because they were full of ideas. They questioned authority and the system itself um, with an incredible soundtrack. 
And, um, you know, I, I think uh, that sort of opened my mind. Um, the other night I met one of my radio presenter he- heroes, Bill, um, Billy Pennell, mm-hmm. who used to do the album show um, back in the 80s. And I, do I remember, remember that. Yep. Yeah, I remember tuning into him late on Sunday nights. And I think somebody like that was also a huge influence in just giving me a language of music mm. and being able to think in more depth about where music comes from, what it means. And, um, yeah, the, the, it, 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 it's such a rich um, part of our lives. So, yeah, I loved um, yeah, music in general um, that had um, a sense of depth to it, something to say. And I think, you know, the, there's similarities between punk rock and country when you talk about, you know, three chords and the truth. Um Bands like the Pogues were very important to my kind of transition to a more folk and, and roots kind of world. Mm-hmm. There was a song that Steve L recorded with the Pogues on the Rum Sodomy and the Lash album called Jesse James. And um, yeah, Steve L put out Copperhead Road in the late 80s and that just um, sucked me right in. Mm-hmm. And um He's a very uh, kind of politically defiant person. He describes himself as to the left of Chairman Mao. And, you know, when, when you're willing to release songs like um, John Walker, Lynn's Blues, you know, after this guy they dubbed the American Taliban, have records smashed by right-wing radio presenters in Nashville, mm. um, he, he, he has never really cared about pleasing the Nashville or music establishment in mm. general, he's yep. stuck to his guns. And, um, yeah, I, I, I can't help but um, have complete respect for that because I think there's a strong overlap with music, with ideas. There's, you know, a whole history um, through the likes of Joe Hill, Woody Guthrie, um, that I, I strongly identify with because music does not come from nowhere. It doesn't. It's not created in any kind of cultural vacuum mm. yeah. it has a role to play through social movements and um you know I, I i think yeah people have these debates about whether or not music can or can't change the world maybe it can't in and of itself but i think it's an important aspect of our lives in general and it helps shape consciousness and you know in our own lifetimes we see the likes of archie roach who um, write songs like Took the Ch- Children Away, mm. and they do change a nation's perception around issues like the stolen generations and so forth. So there's undeniable power about songs, the power of songwriting, setting ideas to a melody that cannot be argued with. And yeah, I think if you're a storyteller through song, there are certain um, sonic textures like country folk and Americana that really do lend themselves uh, as a sort of bed for sharing ideas yeah, and stories. Um, and you're very much from the um, the storyteller tradition. Um, those early experiences of music, it's not just music that shaped you. Um, you had a uh, family that was very political around you growing up. Is that correct? Um I think I have an accentuated political gene in me, (laughs) um, to be honest. I mean, you know, 
I didn't come from hardcore left-wing um, parentage by mm. any means, but I came from a family that was affected by racism on my mum's side. And I think, um, you know, to me, uh, the political has always been personal. Mm. And um, I've always identified with people who were oppressed, oppressed, um, you know, even from early schoolhood days, um, being picked on for having a speech impediment and that sort of thing. I, I, I saw the way that bullies would pick on me mm. and the same people would pick on my classmate Mary because she was Greek. Right. Yeah. You know, and... That's kind of our era, isn't it, that... Uh, yeah. I mean, to, to think that people would get picked on because of a Greek now in Australia is almost unimaginable. But back then it was... Yeah. You know, well, so I, I, I went to Williamstown North Primary School. Um, very... It was like 98% white Anglo. And, um, yeah, very homogenous and... Um, anybody who stood out in any way became a target. Mm. And these kids who would pick on me for having a speech impediment, when they started picking on other kids like Mary, I would punch the shit out of them <laughs> um, because, you know, you, you don't stand for that. Mm. And my mum in particular educated me about opposing racism and, um, you know, not... Um, not not being a bullying, you know. We said on a previous type. episode that it's always um, okay to punch Nazis, but maybe that's okay for bullies as well. Um, <clears throat> so you have a new record, um, you, you, like you literally have a vinyl record in the studio with us uh, today. Uh, All my friends are superstars. Um, so I'm, I'm just going to delve into that a little bit. Um, so the first single, Man on Fire, is that correct? Yeah, it yeah. is. All right, uh, give us the backstory there. I, I've, I've read a little bit about it online, um, mm. but obviously enough of a story to make you want to uh, immortalise it. Okay, so basically uh, I wrote this song in 2016 in the aftermath of um, uh, an extreme um, uh, breakdown. I was very uh, unwell uh, mentally and um, I'd been campaigning um, around um, the Dondale Detention Centre um, where young um, boys were effectively being tortured and abused um, in this institution and um, I have um, quite a vulnerability when it comes to witnessing things like torture and abuse and I'm, I'm conscious that um, I can be vulnerable to what they call vicarious trauma. Um, basically when I saw uh, Dylan Voller and other kids being um, abused, it, it sort of sent me into a spiral and um, made it very hard for me to concentrate on anything else and made it very hard for me to sleep for several weeks. I was hitting the streets, rallying, and um, basically fighting this um, 
this horrific situation among um, the Aboriginal community of Victoria. And um, eventually, you know, you can't stay in that sort of trajectory. Uh, You're going to hit the wall and you're Mm, going to crash. And um, that's exactly what happened after that sort of campaign um, came to a halt. I I, um, collapsed in a heap. And um, I remember sobbing and um, being completely, uh, you know, beyond, um, yeah, I just lost it completely. And what followed from there is um, words and songs started to pour out of me. And I remember going from a state of feeling despair to a state of elation and I would have, um, I'd picked up my guitar and within the space of an hour, I might've written 10 songs, um, complete with lyrics and all of it all, and everything. And um, every waking moment that I had, um, these songs and ideas would just not stop coming to me. I had a compulsion to write them all down or mm. um, I didn't really record them at that time. And um, one afternoon, um, I wrote uh, the music and words to Man on Fire. And I remember my wife came home uh, with a couple of friends of hers. And I sang it to her uh, and and our friends. And um, it's just sometimes you can write a song and sing it and it's sort of already in your mind. You don't have to rehearse it. You don't mm, have to yeah. reread or anything like that. And that was one of those songs. It was like a crystallization of where I was at and how I felt. And the words itself, they are talking to a fellow activist who I care for and love and respect. And, you know, because I basically lost the plot, I had a lot of guilt about that. So, you know, one of the lines is, I didn't mean to hurt, burn you, my friend. And, um, you know, like I couldn't help becoming sick. Mm. Um, But, yeah, I think um, that's just an expression uh, of what I went through. And it's also an expression of trying to learn from a really, really painful experience like Mm. that because life will continue uh, for me and, yeah. and others, um, having gone through those things, and you want to be uh, a, an effective and decent human being. Mm. And while you talk about losing it, uh, the events of Don Dale are horrific, um, and the correct response to that is to be horrified and shocked and appalled. Um, how, how we move forward from there, um, that's something that we really need to do together as a community and um when we feel like we have we have to take those things on ourselves, um it can be overwhelming um and i think this song and lots of activist songs one of the great strengths is letting people know that they're not alone in what they care about in the world um letting them know that there are causes worth hanging in there for um so even though you've been through you know, this traumatic experience, I think, um, you know, trying to look on the bright side, um, hopefully this song connects with other people 
who are going through similar things. And um, because uh, resilience in community building is really hard. Hmm. Um, if you're with people every day who have um, have been treated poorly, have um, significant needs, how do you keep going? Hmm. Um yeah, I think that, you know, what I have tried to apply in my own life is, like, I understand that I have a natural inclination towards empathy mm-hmm. with other humans. Um, empathy, I think, is extremely important in relating to and trying to understand where other people are coming from. Um, I'm cautious now about where empathy can potentially take me if it basically um, gets to a point where it does me harm and I become useless to others. Mm. So I try to um, adopt a consciously compassionate attitude, you know, that is mindful of the risks of being overly empathetic. Mm. So, um, yeah, I I think I understand um, trauma and, you know, so many of my friends and loved ones are affected by trauma um, but I think you know there there are ways of um, you know through things like cognitive behavioral therapy of being able to say this is in my control or that is not in my control mm-hmm. this is what I can do in this situation yep. these are the purposes in my life that I can apply myself to fruitfully so yeah like just this last couple of weeks i've been listening to the audio book of man's search for meaning by victor frankl Mm -hmm. you know a survivor of auschwitz and psychiatrist and um i think just a little bit of light listening exactly but you know he basically outlies uh outlays a, a strategy of survival through the most horrific circumstances imaginable um you know and also a way of like trying to be a decent human being in an indecent world Mm. so i I think yeah there are ways of viewing things that you know kind of can um tilt the odds of survival in your favor um frankel himself observed people who um gave up on a sense of purpose um, literally uh, you know lying in their own waste um, smoking a cigarette and being dead within you know a couple of hours or days Mm. Um, but I think yeah proceeding in life with an understanding of its realities but also an understanding of your own capacity Mm. um, that Um, is a source of purpose it's a source of strength and reason for being and yeah the quote that um that frankel uses a lot in that book is uh the nietzsche uh quote that uh he who has a why will always have a how Mm. you know Uh, so yeah like I, i i i have to take my own survival really really seriously um, yeah. I have a family I have a community that I care about That's right. yeah. and um, it's not just about serving my own ego yeah. Um, and yeah I think 
yeah, I, I want to see um, the, those people around me uh, do well and, you know, like every day is a battle for so many of us. Mm. So I think um, we've got to be here for each other. Yeah. Um, so this new album, um, I've had the pleasure of having an early listen and um, I, got to, I think it's um, your best work yet. Really impressed with it. Um, loving the mixes and especially the, um, the pedal steel playing. Um, we had a bit of a chat um, over the last couple of years just about um, different styles of recording and microphones and so sort of more that kind of techie side of things. And um, But knowing a little bit about you, I'd, I would say that this album's been highly curated in how you brought together people to play on it and how it was recorded. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about that? I've, I've got a few notes here that I'm going to jump in with here and there, but... Um, yeah, how did you go about the process of putting together the the team and the players for the album? Um, well, most central to the whole project was the involvement of Stephen Grady mm -hmm. on production duties. So Stephen is an um, incredibly uh, talented singer-songwriter. Mm -hmm. He's got, you know, one of the sweetest male voices you've ever heard. And, Liz, um, I'm sitting right here. Yeah. <laughs> um, what can I say, <laughs> You're wonderful. Um, but, uh, yeah, Steve, Stephen and I uh, became friends during um, the uh, Justin Townsell tributes that I organised back in 2021. And um, after Stephen broke his foot playing touch football, he had a lot of spare time. And um, we basically set about recording this album track by track. Mm -hmm. um, in, you know, pretty much our own home studio settings, including his apartment, which was right next to the train line oh up in Northcote. So you know, we had to slow things down when it was approaching five o'clock. Yeah. So we were working around trains, barking dogs, construction works, um, things like that a, a fair bit. But, yeah, I, I come from um, having quite a bit of experience doing recordings with pop music producers, mm -hmm. um, mainly out of Red Door Sounds in Collingwood. And um, I'm used to doing multi-tracking um, and using clicks and using guide tracks and so forth. And I'm, I'm a believer in um, straight time because I think <laughs> that it works emotionally. And um, uh, 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 yeah whereas Steve comes at things in a more sort of organic swing kind of way. Mm. Like, I love feel, but, like, the target is just getting the emotions right as far as I'm concerned for, for, for the songs. Um, but, yeah, as you would know, um, recording to a grid has great advantages when it comes to editing and so forth. And, um, yeah, we had to be strategic. Obviously, I don't have a studio budget or a label budget and mm. that sort of thing. So you can do an incredible amount of great sounding work um, using an SM7B microphone <laughs> and an um, SM57. And uh, yeah, I have a, a couple of me, um, small diaphragm condensers um, for acoustics and, and things like that. And um, 
basically once we had, you know, there were, there were incredible musicians from, including Jason Bunn on viola and mm-hmm. fiddle. He plays with the Australian Chamber Orchestra and Australian Ballets. Jai Perry Bangs, you mentioned the pedal steel playing, mm-hmm. is a world-class um, musician, a Fender-endorsed artist. Um, you've got um, beautiful singing from H- Hannah Rackfield, um, great guitar Who playing. coincidentally will be the support act at your album launch. Yeah, far from a coincidence. We, we, was, we, will, yeah. <laughs> we will get get to that later. Yeah. So, yeah, Tommy Brooks is a great guitar player who helped out on one track and Megan Bernard, who's um, guitar playing, I I absolutely love Beyond Words, uh, plays on the track Oil and Water. So, you know, the way that I compose a song, I really do have a, a pretty big orchestra in my imagination a lot of the time and, um a lot of the uh, sort of challenge of capturing a song is creating the full sound mm. that you have in, in your mind uh, on that recording. And I think that we, we managed to really get there um, pretty pretty much, all, you know, with all of the songs. Uh, so I'll go through a couple of the tracks. Um, all My Friends Are Superstars. Now... The interesting thing listening to this song was that when it when it kicked in, I thought, well, you know, that's got a little bit of a Don Walker vibe to it. And then suddenly a lyric jumps jumps out that a busker's playing chisel songs. Mm. Um, was that an intentional thing that in the production, the orchestration of that song, um, or was it just a coincidence in my mind? Um, well, yeah, I, I, I think it's more of a uh, unconscious influence on my part. Um, I have a huge amount of respect for Don Walker. Um, but, yeah, certainly not trying to copy him. But I think, yeah, it is a, it, it's an Australian kind of story. Mm. And I think that might add to it and it's delivered in a conversational way. Yeah. And, um, yeah, we're talking largely about places that we know and yeah, people right. that we know. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, this is it, our musical lives. Uh, even though one of the other songs is um, about the, the ghost, or the, was it the Spectre or Ghost of Melbourne? The, the Ghost of Melbourne City. It was, yeah, uh, it was this, uh, it was All My Friends Are Superstars that was like, oh, this just feels like Melbourne to me. Mm. So, yeah, cool. Um, so one of the... Uh, the other songs, nowhere, nowhere I'd rather be. That seemed to be more on the personal side of things rather than the um, political banner waving, um, traditional Les Thomas tracks. <laughs> A tub thumping, <laughs> um, Bolshevik. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's both actually, okay. because you know, nowhere I would rather be. I wrote mainly. Um, really about my relationship with my wife Um, and it is about listening and about gratitude and appreciation for that um, one that you love and, um, you know, how uh, important that is. You know, these these relationships um, make us who we are but, you know, the, the song itself is about a pretty central belief that I have and that's that human beings are really here for each other. Mm, yeah. You know, we actually, 
we're, we're not designed in any sense um, to be isolated or alone. Mm. Uh, and, um, yeah, we are here to uh, love and we are here to serve and we are here to listen and be together. Um, and the other track that jumped out was um, Babylon. What is Babylon for you? Um, Babylon is the system of oppression, the system of, you know, a dominant paradigm that's based on greed, mm. exploitation, war, racism, um, and all forms of oppression, you know. And, yeah, it's coming uh, from a similar direction to the way that uh, people like Bob Marley sung about Babylon and, yeah, it is a song about confronting that, that evil um, dominant system. Mm. And that's, yeah, I, I, I wanted to capture that sort of uh, spirit of um, resistance. And, uh, you know, I think um, it's a very, very different song for me because it has a political and spiritual dimension to it. It's not religious as mm. such, um, but I think a lot of the music of liberation, um, you know, has has that kind of tradition of um, pulling on um, what, whatever um, higher power you need mm. to overcome the obstacles yeah. uh, of um, oppression. Um, I was reading a book on um, uh, a slave that was able to um, extract themselves from their situation and then become uh, a minister. Um, this is in the late 1800s. Um, and um, the use of that Christian tradition in their spirituality, in the way that they talked about their plight and their movement and also appealing to the wider population in um, the cause for um, you know, being liberated. So I think there's a lot to be said for that. It, it doesn't have to be a particular religion um, or belief, but that idea that um, there is something better and higher that we can all aspire to, I think is really powerful. Hmm. Yeah, and if you... Um listen to the backing vocals on the song Babylon. They come courtesy of an incredible gospel singer by the name of Sakari Woods. And, you know, she grew up steeped in the traditions of the black church mm. where that sort of um, spiritual sustenance of music is so important mm. and central. And, yeah, I think that elevates the song to a higher place. Um, so... Were there any moments during maybe you know, the production of this album or in uh, past musical experiences, say performing, that um, became your most desperate moment of innovation where you had to do something out of the ordinary to make something work? Um, actually, Babylon was the biggest kind of challenge in terms of production. I think, you know, there was a lot of... Uh, Toing and froing between myself and Steve, and just communicating that kind of idea mm -hmm. uh, of that song, and yeah. Are, are like, we getting a lowdown on uh, behind the scenes fighting, it's the tabloids of uh, Melbourne Americana production? 
Well, yeah, he did give me this black eye once. <laughs> no, that's not true. He was very gentle with me. I was pretty gentle with him. <laughs> but um, I think, you know, it's good to um, nut out an idea and actually know why you're doing whatever it is. Like, actually, I remember being um, very young and, and watching the classic albums show, mm -hmm. Docker, Docos, and um, I was always impressed when an artist or a producer could say, I did this for this reason. And I'm like, yeah, you did. That was <laughs> an intelligent call. Well done, you know. And um, I, I don't go into recording anything really without a very, very clear sense of what I'm after. Mm. So one of the um, parts of um, the song, The Longest Day on this album, um, uses a baritone guitar, and basically I wanted to tap into that um, Twin Peaks theme kind yeah, of sound. Right, gotcha. Yep. And, and, and uh, that's a sound that has a physiological effect, mm. you know, that deep, rich... Um, tone and um, yeah that, so having very very clear um, benchmarks is, is helpful things to aim for and um, yeah there, there, there are discussions that we had around songs and sort of compromises and you know I wasn't completely closed off to you know Stephen's ideas like the lucky ones became much more of a Irish pub sing-along mm -hmm. kind of a sound, whereas I had a more lonesome cowboy in the desert kind right, of right. thing going on. But, yeah. Um, so another thing that I thought would be interesting to talk about, um, given your focus on social justice and, um, I guess, uh, progressive values, right at this point in the country that we live on, um, so-called Australia, um, we're being put to a referendum about whether or not we think our Indigenous people should have a voice to the Parliament. Um, now, I'm a middle-aged white guy, um, leaving aside the fact that I don't think that I should have any say on whether or not my, you know, my Indigenous community should have a voice to Parliament. Um, I don't think I should be part of that process. I don't think it's my decision, leaving that aside, um, where do you feel like you land on, um, on this issue, um, or even just the process? Yeah, I don't like the process, mm. but I think that I need to sort of approach it in, um, in a way where I'm very, very respectful mm. of, um, the community across Australia, um, respectful of the diversity of views. Um, but as you say, we're living on Wurundjeri country. Yeah. And I made it a point yesterday of finding out if there was a Wurundjeri formal position. And I um, got word back from the council that they are um, actively calling for a yes vote. Mm. And that makes it a really straightforward question for yeah. me now um, because, yeah, I perfectly agree with what you say 
Um, you know, I would much rather it not be put to the uh, 97 non-Indigenous population yeah. to make this call. But if, um, you know, the rest of us who aren't Wurundjeri basically support the decisions mm. of the sovereign people of this country um, in principle, um, yeah, there's every reason to uh, support that. And um, I think you can support that in a way that doesn't have illusions about it too. Mm. So not seeing this in simplistic terms, not seeing it as any kind of silver bullet, yep. understanding that the fight for justice is an ongoing one mm. and that we need to be committed to, you know, there are still going to be um, issues. And, yeah, my feel for what will happen on the day is very, very pessimistic. Mm. A and, you know, like I, I know that there are forces... Um, in this country who want to roll back whatever existing rights there are at this point in time, which is horrific given, yeah. given the, the state of black Australia. Um, so, yeah, I think we need to be um, ready to come together um, regardless of how we intend to vote. So, you know, there's been division and friction and hostility that's been whipped up around this referendum but life will continue after that how do we come together how do we uh you know push in in the right direction when when the dust of the referendum settles mm, yeah um having spent a long time uh in the community around collingwood and having many different thoughts from the indigenous community um it's for me it just feels outrageous that someone that, that he's not part of the community gets to have a say on those issues um, and definitely understand that, you know, I mean, this seems like the tiniest kind of thing that we can we can do to move forward. Um, if you look at countries like um, Canada and New Zealand, there are treaties in place and the country hasn't, um, you know, gone up in, in flames. Um, so, you know, hopefully, fingers crossed and... Um, but I think you're right, it's going to take the community working together in whatever aftermath we have. So. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, that there is, there's going to be, you know, people are going to probably feel pretty down or, or, or whatnot. I think a bit about um, some people will remember the mass worldwide rallies against the uh, 2003 invasion of Iraq mm. and because of the scale of those protests there was a sense of they have to listen to us you know they can't go in and defy um, you know this this worldwide opinion but they did yeah. and it created a lot of demoralization for years to come you know what good is um, protest all the rest of it um, the yes campaign the way it was crafted and conceived and executed um, for the most part, it had an exclusive feel about it. So people who were like, okay, you're too radical, we don't <laughs> want to hear from you or whatever. And um, it, it, it had this um, taint actually uh, of a degree of corporate backing from mm. the likes of Rio Tinto and BHP. Now, the way yeah, I Liz, view... is that the same Rio Tinto that blew up a, um, a sacred yeah, site? Yeah, Rock and Gorge. Oh, right. So, 
you know, at every uh, major corporation in Australia has a reconciliation action plan, mm. and <coughs> it's good business sense for them to um, have a outward image of being, um, you know, good guys, so to speak, and um, pitch in to help and that sort of thing. Um, Rio Tinto, as I understand it, um, have a value as a company of about $170 billion. BHP has a value of um, $270-odd billion. And um, $2 million to them is chump change. Yep. Um, but it does so give a them... A rounding error on a tax return. Yeah. yeah. But, they, but, but they get to um, say, oh, well, we were supportive and, and this sort of thing. And... But, yeah, the pollsters say, actually, people look at this stuff and it's like a red flag to them, mm. you know. When Qantas, um, as led by Alan Joyce, gets behind it, it doesn't... It's not helping the campaign. But I think, you know, a, a lot of it is to do with, um, yeah, what's cosmetic, what's convenient, um, but actually... You know, I observe all of this um, argy-bargy on social media, people um, having very, very fixed positions. But I think, you know, if if people spent more time going out and actually listening to what people have to say um, outside of that sort of social media realm, mm. it would make life a lot easier because... Every article that gets shared via some clickbait news site wants to cultivate anger, yep. confusion, and fucking disarray. Mm. So, yeah, like I'm listening to um, Robert Thorpe, I'm listening to Celeste Little, I'm listening to hundreds and hundreds of friends you know, across different platforms from different communities. But most importantly for me, I'm listening to Wurundjeri elders mm. who are very, very clear or overwhelmingly clear at least. And, you know, yeah, if you're a supporter of um, Aboriginal control of Aboriginal affairs, then that should be tremendously clarifying and, yeah, as I say, you don't have to think it's all done and dusted and it's going to be perfect or, or fantastic or even great. It's, you know, chances are, you know, shit that happens in Canberra is very rarely uh, anything to, to, to shout about. But mm. it's like, you know, what do you do? What are the choices you make with, um, what, you know, what's on offer? Yeah. Um. Yeah, I very much agree with that. Um, hopefully we can see the kind of um, community action that was similar to the votes on um, same-sex marriage. Um, the the work that um, Sally Rugg did uh, was pretty impressive. If um, you want a bit more in, uh, insight into that, her book, um, How Powerful We Are, is great reading uh, for anyone mm. that is interested in trying to do a little bit more activism or uh, join up with people who are already... Um, activists. Um, Liz, so, thanks so much for coming in today. Um, so we've got your album launch camera coming up on the 29th of October. 
3 p.m. at the Wesleyan, yeah. beautiful venue in High Street in Northcote. Um, and as we mentioned to Elia, Hannah Atchfield as the support. Um, what else can you tell us about this album and this launch? Well, um, the album is available to pre-order now mm-hmm. via my Bandcamp page. Bandcamp. If you look up Brilliant. Les Thomas at Bandcamp. And, um, yeah, I, I, I'm really um, thrilled with how the album's come together and how it's being received. I'm looking forward to presenting it um, in the uh, album tour that will kick, on, kick off on the 29th of October at the Wesleyan and um, bringing my full band with me, consisting oh, of Stephen brilliant. Grady on bass, Joshua Jones on lead guitar, and uh, Justin Olsen on drums. Um, Hannah Atfield, as we know, will be um, singing and hopefully joining me for quite a few of the songs. And yeah, uh, I, I think it'll be a wonderful shared experience. I hope you, you can make it, um, people out there who are listening, and um, let your people know about it. And um, yeah, um, being an independent artist, um, yeah, it's all about uh, having that direct relationship with real human beings like yourself. So I appreciate all the support and I appreciate coming on for a chat today, Christopher. Yeah, thank you. Um, there's also t-shirts and vinyl on the band camp. There are, there are Waratah t-shirts yeah. um, that I designed myself. So the Waratah, um, is actually a, the flower that uh, my wife and I used um, at our wedding. It's symbolic to us of love and beauty in life. The indigenous name uh, Waratah translates as beauty. And uh, yeah, whenever I look at them, I feel happy. And I, I came up with this design. And sometimes you get a feel about something where it just makes your heart sing a little bit. Uh, and that's um, the way it worked. So rather than have uh, a, a T-shirt with my own silly head on it, um, <laughs> I'm glad that it has this kind of beautiful, um, you know, touch of nature mm. and beauty about it. So, yeah, check out the Waratah T-shirts on my uh, merch page on Bandcamp and you can grab them in Waratah Red or Melbourne Black. <laughs> and, um, yeah... The vinyl record um, is up there as well, and I also have CDs um, for you CD traditionalists. <laughs> um, it's a great format, crystal clear. You can't go wrong. But, um, yeah, um, lovely to uh, have so much wonderful support from, from beautiful folks out there. Uh, I'll make sure to put all of the links in the podcast description so that you can find it easily. Um, So thanks again, Les, for coming in today. And everyone out there, remember, there is magic in the mystery of not quite knowing what you're doing. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Q Playback.